Good afternoon, I'm Peter Himmelman, and you are listening to the first Big Muse podcast. This is, well, it's the first, it's not the first time I've thought about it, it's probably the 313th time I've thought about it, but there's something very different about this time. This is the time where I actually sat down to do something about it, and I can't guarantee where this is going or what it is. It's largely unstructured. I just had the impetus to sit myself down in my studio, which I have a recording studio. Every musician must have one these days. It's like a a banjo player in the 1890s must have a banjo or maybe two. Every musician these days needs a studio. I've had one for many, many years. It's almost like the studio is my instrument. Um, It's my way of putting music out into the world. And uh, Not that I don't have a banjo in here. I use that from time to time. But since I have the studio, I have these amazing microphones. I don't have to rent one. I thought, why don't I use this impetus that I have? What did I say? 313 times I've thought about this. So this is the 314th time where I actually sat down in a chair to do this. And I know that's a long-winded way of, of sort of introducing this idea, but there is something very magical about the time that we take whatever it is that we're mulling over, that we're possibly fearful or anxious of doing, and sit down and do it. Um, and I notice, I, I talk about this a lot, I'm, and I'm constantly amazed at how consistent it is. The fear that I had about doing this podcast. And let me say, when I talk about fear here, and I may talk about it quite a bit, it's not a fear of falling out of a plane or being consumed by a rabid puma. These are relative emotional fears. So let's keep everything in a perspective. But the fear I had about doing this, um, I don't have anything to say. I'll sound stupid. Nobody will listen. Right now, this is sort of my axiom. When you sit down to undertake the task as opposed to mull the task, the fear simply abates. And now I'm actually not afraid at all. And dare I say, I don't want to, you know, jinx myself, but I'm actually enjoying this experience of sitting here and talking to you right now. Um, that's the the tricky thing, the beautiful thing, the magic thing where the nascent idea goes from some ephemeral state. I don't know where it exists in the electrons of our minds. I don't. Do we have electrons? I believe we do. God knows I'm not a neuroscientist, though I am eating kosher Thai food with uh, Dan Siegel, who happens to live in my neighborhood. He is a world-famous neuroscientist. He coined the term mindsight, sort of the, perhaps spearheading the whole mindfulness movement. But this idea, it exists somewhere in the brain. It does not exist in any tangible place. Now pulling it, culling it from this ephemeral, you know, non-material space into reality where I'm sitting down, my physical being is sitting in a chair, my green lumbar support chair, which I've sat in for hundreds, maybe thousands of hours scoring network television and some films, I'm now sitting in that same chair doing this thing that I feared. It's almost like a Ray Bradbury 
sort of story. How is it that you can take this nascent, formless idea and draw it through the pinhole, as my friend and filmmaker Jim Hersletter always likes to say, drawing this idea down from wherever it exists on some astral plane or somewhere within the neurons of our brain and bring it in into reality. So I had this impetus to do this, to move ahead. And I'd like to explore a little bit of this idea right now. What causes us to finally move our ideas into the world? To me, it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, I can talk about myself because I know myself very well. Um, this idea that by dint of my birth order, I was third in a family of four children. So my older sister, who made a lot of noise, she made a lot of racket. God love her. Her name is Nina. And she got so much attention in the family just because she was the first. I mean, that's common. My older brother, Paul, got so much attention because he was the first boy. And how exciting it was for my parents to have a, a boy. And my younger sister, Susie, was the baby. And, uh, you know, she got a certain amount of attention just for being the little one. Now, this, this, these are my perceptions. I don't know that my parents felt this way. But I always felt that I had to do something special, something remarkable. I couldn't simply just sit around and watch TV. It's been a compelling factor for, of mine forever. This idea that I need to create both perhaps to sort of fulfill uh, this desire of mine to see the fruits of my imagination take place and and kind of put themselves into the world. That's that's sort of what I would consider the positive aspect. The kind of uh, the more problematic aspect is that this need, this constant, perhaps over ambition of mine, that if I'm not in motion, if I'm not producing things, I will be left behind. Um, it's a fear that has compelled me to do many things that I think are, are worthwhile. And perhaps you share some of these same, the same polarity. And, and I think many people do. The polarity being, one, on a positive side, you have ideas which are, are positive. They are proactive. And bringing them in the, into the world is something we do for ourselves. It's an internal or intrinsic motivator. And I, I believe that's a, a healthy thing. But then there's all, also this idea that we're, we're doing these things, whatever they might be, um, to get attention. And, and the sort of the vulnerable part of us needs this. It requires that, we, that we're never abandoned, that we're always noticed. Now, I look at this, as if some of you might have looked at some of my things online, they're all over the place now. I created a few years back this sort of metaphor it's a milk toasty looking guy. Looks a little bit like me. His name is Marv, and you know I've given Marv sort of the well. His his name is an acronym actually for majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. He's the voice in our heads that says, "Peter, you're going to sit down in this chair and try to do a podcast. You're going to sound like such an idiot. Nobody's going to care what you have to say." 
No one will listen. And when you get into that chair, you'll have nothing to say. He's kind of the sort of the naysaying voice in our minds. Now, Marv, as I call him, majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability, does not want to limit our lives. He, he, is, he exists to preserve our life. And that puma that I mentioned, that hungry puma that will eat us, I assume they're man-eating. I've never actually met one. If that puma were to break into my studio right now and attempt to, to do me harm, only mar of this function of in my limbic brain the primitive brain, he would take action. Marv would say, all right, we got to either, you know, get out of here, or maybe you could dispatch this Puma with one of your heavyweight Telecasters or maybe a Les Paul. He would save my life. But on the other hand, when I'm worried about things, when I'm mulling things over to, to excess, Marv is limiting my life. But why does he do that? Why does he limit us from doing the things that we want to do? Well, and how is that life-saving in any way? The way I see it is Marv is saying, Peter, you're going to get and try to do this podcast, and it's going to be a disaster. You're going to fail. Now, he, he, he allows us to see something that's, that's probable. It's possible that I could sit in this chair and really humiliate myself with having nothing to say. And perhaps if I put this online, nobody would respond. It's possible. So what would that engender? What would that sort of failure engender in me? It would engender a sense of shame. And Marv is on my back. He's saying it's exactly right. Is it the chain from failure to shame? And what happens, Marv poses this question, which is sort of the grand question. What happens to the shamed? What happens to shameful people? The natural consequence of being a shameful person is that you are shunned and abandoned. This is something we, we intuited on a pre-verbal level when we were infants. We knew for sure that if we were somehow, though we didn't have the language to, to understand it all or certainly to articulate it, we knew that were we abandoned, we would cease to live. We would literally die. So when Marv is setting up this question for us, you know, to do the podcast or not, in my case, to use it as an example, there is an aspect, an element of a mortal fear in there. This, Though we're not maybe conscious of it, the reason it took me 313 attempts, so to speak, to actually sit here and do this on my first maiden podcast voyage is because Marv was dangling this bell of doom, this bell of mortality, which rings in our subconscious. If you do this and fail, you will be ashamed. If you're ashamed, you will be abandoned. If you're abandoned, drum roll, please, you will die. Well, Marv doesn't want us not to do our things. He, because he understands that second aspect of doing our things, bringing our vision to life is a very beautiful and wonderful thing. Bringing our creative ideas to life is one of the greatest joys of our life. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's what pulls us to other people, which is what Marv really wants, us to be generous and to be in community with other people. But as long as we are 
fearful as long as we're mulling, mulling to the extent that we do not take action on these ideas. Marv is there surrounding us. So what happened this moment, and which I think is constantly interesting, is sort of the Ray Bradbury thing. I merely sat on a chair and turned on my 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 computer, which I do almost every day, to, to you know turn on this recording device, which is you know if you really want to think about it, an incredibly miraculous thing, you know that we have this ability to sit in in our homes and put this beautiful sounding audio thing into the world and that's a whole other subject but as soon as I sat sat down to start talking Marv was I see him in the other side of the room he's sipping a, a latte and reading the New York Times and he's looking at me he's pointing my, his finger at me he goes you go Peter you are doing it I love this but as long as we're fearful Marv is like no, 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 no watch yourself watch yourself you take one single small action towards your goal, which is to sit your ass down on your green lumbar chair, whatever the hell it is that you sit on, Marv is already leaving you alone to pursue your idea. So there's just something to think about. I'm going to call my wife back. She just called. Normally I would get her, but I was on a roll. Um, have a great day. This is the first of our maiden voyage. I'm, I'm thinking about having a a co-partner here there's a million incredibly intelligent creative people that i want to be doing this with but this is my solo flight hope you enjoyed it talk to you soon